Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, that fills all in all. A quick review of our prayer list in today's bulletin will tell us the nature of the concerns that we bring to the Lord. As I counted them, two or three could be interpreted as concern for someone's spiritual condition. Four of them are seeking prayer for practical guidance or emotional encouragement. And the remainder, about 30 things on the list, are for physical safety and healing. That's not including the 32 names on the cancer list. Now, I'm not going to suggest that we need to stop praying for any of those things. We don't need to make a drastic overhaul of the prayer list. But in the text this morning, we essentially get a peek at the Apostle Paul's personal prayer list. And when we dig into it, we will find that his list is leaning heavily in a different direction than ours does. You understand, as Paul writes his letters, he does write in some of his letters uh, about individual people. He, He does know the concerns of the church at Ephesus. No doubt in the church at Ephesus, there were ailments and illnesses there were physical needs there were safety concerns and yet Paul's prayer list for that church could be summed up in this way he prays words of thanksgiving to God for their faithfulness he prays that God would grant them illumination specifically about the mind of God and the might of God And he prays words of praise concerning the glory of Jesus Christ, the head of the church who is greater than anything or anyone else. As we continue this study of the church at Ephesus, remember Paul founded this assembly and remained with them teaching for about three years. He knows them as well as any other church in the New Testament. He stopped to speak with the elders on his way past Ephesus, going to Jerusalem where he was going to be arrested. And now six or seven years have passed. The church has grown. There's no specific problem that Paul's writing about in this letter. It seems more a letter of encouragement to them to give them a 
essentially an update on how his house arrest in Rome is going. Last time we looked at verses 3 through 14. If you remember, it's that massive single sentence praising the glory of God the Father and election and adoption, the glory of God the Son in redemption and forgiveness and the glory of God the Holy Spirit for his sealing and securing believers. And every step of the way in that process, God did what he did because of undeserved grace, just the unreserved love of God based on his own desires with the goal, Paul said three times in that that, uh, sentence, that we would be to the praise of his glory. Now we need to remember that because our text in verse 15 starts off with the word wherefore. Or in other words, because of that. So this next section of chapter 1 naturally and logically flows out of that praise of his glory in verses 3 through 14. As amazing as that sentence in verses 3 through 14 was, Paul follows it with this personal prayer list for the church at Ephesus. And our text this morning, verse 15 through 23, is another single huge sentence describing Paul's prayers for this church. Those prayers for Ephesus are focused in three ways. We'll see a prayer of thanksgiving in verses 15 and 16, a prayer for growth in verses 17 through 20, and a prayer of praise, verses 20 through 23. The thanksgiving starts in verse 15. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now initially, verse 15 might cause us to wonder what Paul means. Why would he say it this way? If he knows this church so well, why does he say, well, that I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus? But remember, he's been gone six or seven years, and the church has undergone some changes, no doubt some of them dramatic. It has grown a bit. They've likely seen a few people fall away. Persecution by the civil authorities was a constant threat. And so in his genuine love for the members of this church, Paul would have been listening carefully for the past six or seven years for any news about how they were faring. And when the word of their faith, their faithfulness comes to Paul, he is thrilled with the news and prays thanksgiving to God for their faithfulness. But note in verse 15, take a look at it. Who is the object of their faith? What's the cause of their faithfulness? Paul says, it is in the Lord Jesus. When the apostle calls him the Lord Jesus, it is not just a thoughtless expression. You know what happens with us is we get so used to those terms, Jesus and Christ and Lord, that we just think of them all as if they're just entirely interchangeable. We read them like any combination of those three words means essentially the same thing. 
And to be sure, he is all of those. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name. Just like any other name of a man who is born into this world, he has the name Jesus. He is a human being. But Christ is his title. It means anointed, like the the Old Testament term Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. And the word Lord is a description of his authority. The word Lord means master. There are many today who would suggest that a person can have faith in Jesus, right? Saving faith in Jesus. And then turn around and live however they want to. And in order to excuse that behavior and say that that person really is saved, they'll say something like, oh, oh, Billy? Well, Billy knows Jesus is his savior, but he has not recognized him as Lord of his life. Y'all, that is entirely contrary to the clear teaching of the New Testament. This same Apostle Paul writes that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. An essential part of salvation is recognizing The lordship of Jesus. He is your Lord. He is your master. He is the one who has all the authority. And your life is going to be lived in submission to his authority. This is what Paul means when he says that he's rejoiced when I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. They believed in Jesus as Savior of their souls and as the Lord and Master of their lives. I mean, what else could the Apostle Paul be praising them and thanking God for? Can you imagine Paul having heard the message that, oh, the members of the church at Ephesus, they're a mess of immorality and disobedience and unfaithfulness. I, Paul, I think they know Jesus is their Savior, but they just haven't made him Lord. Can you imagine him hearing that and then writing something about, oh, I'm so thankful for the news that I've heard from you. Not only is the faithfulness of the members of the church at Ephesus expressed in their obedience and submission to Jesus, it's also expressed in their love for other disciples of Jesus. He goes on in verse 15 to say that he's not only thankful for their faithfulness, but also that he's heard of their love unto all the saints. This is a crucial demonstration of faith in Jesus, love for other believers. You might recall the Apostle John wrote it like this in 1 John three fourteen: We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren and who does not love his brother abides in death believers will love other believers listen i have no better cause to love you than the fact that i love jesus and jesus loves you just think about this in practical terms if i came over to your house and assured you that I want to be around you, and I want to be your friend because I love you, but the rest of your family, your spouse, those rotten kids, nah, I don't really want anything to do with them. 
well, we're not going to get along all that well, right? Similarly, don't think that Jesus is good with you saying that you love him without loving his family. But let's not reduce this idea of love to just feelings of affection. Biblically, Christian love has more to do with how you behave than it has to do with how you feel. To love other saints, listen to me, to love other saints, you have to be around them. You have to do things with them. You have to do things for them. You have to be an encouragement in their walk for Christ, showing them an encouraging example of your own walk with Christ, sharing encouraging words, standing shoulder to shoulder with them in obedience to him as Lord. So the Apostle Paul, here he can honestly say that he's praying for the members of the church at Ephesus because he's thankful. He's thankful that they're, of, for their faithfulness, they're leading an obedient life to Jesus as Lord. Jesus is their authority. Nothing else is more important to them than Jesus. And by the way, he's going to come back around to that idea in verses 21 through 23. Jesus is better than anyone or anything. He's an authority over everything. He's the head of the church. So Paul is thankful for their faithfulness and obedience to Jesus in all things. And he's thankful for their expressions of love toward other believers. Now, what we have to do is ask ourselves, how do we stack up to that? I mean, stop for just a minute and let each of us make an honest assessment of our lives. Are you living in obedience to Jesus? Do you show in your life a submission to his authority as Lord in all things? In your life as a member of the Lord's church, does your life show a pattern of, thankful, uh, of faithfulness? Can you be found here worshiping him? Or do you routinely find other people and events that are more important to you? Do you have love for other saints? Do you find yourself around the other saints, working with the other saints, working for the other saints? You standing shoulder to shoulder with them as members of the church, encouraging them and setting an encouraging example for them. In short, just ask yourself if the Apostle Paul had heard word of your life and how you're living it, would he respond with unceasing thankfulness for your faithfulness? In verses 15 and 16, he's thankful for the faithfulness of the church members at Ephesus. But he is not content to stop just with being thankful for their faithfulness. He wants more than faithfulness that's worth being thankful for. His calling and desire is to press those faithful ones forward into further knowledge of God and glory for Jesus Christ. He follows this prayer of thanksgiving with a prayer for growth in verses 17 through 19. This is still in the form of expressing his prayer, right? He says he's been without ceasing. He's been in constant thanksgiving in prayer and, verse 17, praying 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That your, the, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Paul's design or his desire for the uh, faithful members in Ephesus is for them to grow in knowledge so that they would comprehend both the mind of God and the might of God. But listen, faithfulness came first. I would guess if we made an honest assessment, uh, you know, a poll of our own church, those who have been living faithfully in submission and obedience to the Lord are likely the same ones who have been growing in knowledge of the Lord. Spiritual enlightenment and knowledge seldom come outside of submission and obedience. While the apostle refers to several areas of truth in which he wants the church to grow, all of it could be reduced to the single term illumination. His prayer is for the Holy Spirit to illuminate their hearts and minds of believers so that they would grow They would know the Lord more in order to love the Lord more fully, in order to obey the Lord more completely. Of illumination, the Old Testament says it this way in Psalm 119, verses 17 and 18. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things from your law. In the New Testament, illumination is described like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That God, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Illumination begins at salvation. When we're saved, the the eyes of our darkened hearts are opened and the the light comes in. We see ourselves by that light. We see ourselves for who we are. We see the Lord for who he is. We see God's love for what he's done. But illumination has to continue after salvation. It should continue during an obedient life. Think when... When Moses went up the mountain to to meet with the Lord, he received uh, spiritual illumination, right? He received the word of the Lord, but then he came back from the mountain with literal illumination. His face was shining with the glory of God. What Paul tells us here is Yahweh who met Moses on the mountain is the same God who will meet with believers in Ephesus. It's the God who meets with us today. Paul says in verse 17, this is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Your life can shine with God's glory just like Moses' face did. In his power and his glory and his majesty and his holiness, God the Father has sent his Son to redeem believers and God the Holy Spirit illuminates believers. He causes, in the words of verse 18, the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened. 
That kind of illumination brought by the Holy Spirit is Paul's prayer. In verse 17, the word spirit seems to intend the Holy Spirit. I think the the NIV does a good job here when it capitalizes the word spirit, recognizing it is divine. It takes the Holy Spirit of God to illuminate the human heart and mind to spiritual truths. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.14, the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and they can't know them because they are spiritually discerned. It's only the Holy Spirit of God which can bring this illumination to us. And in praying for this illumination for the folks at Ephesus, Paul outlines three specific areas he wants that spiritual wisdom and knowledge to flourish. You can identify those areas in verses 18 and 19 by each time the words what is appears there. He says his prayer is that their eyes of understanding are enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. In essence, the three areas that Paul specifically prays that they would be illuminated, they'd be enlightened, are hope and inheritance and power. Hope in the New Testament is not an expression of desire the way we use it. It's an expression of expectation. It isn't the way we use it and we say, well, gee, I hope this happens. I don't necessarily expect it, but I hope it does. Hope in the New Testament is the confident expectation in the promises of God and the plan of God. Paul wants us to know the the mind of God and the might of God. He doesn't speak to individuals and say, I want you to know more about the hope of your calling. Look at what he says. He says, I want you to know more about the hope of His calling, that is God's calling. Our confident expectation is based on the fact that God has called us. Remember that big sentence right before this? He elects and he predestines and redeems and saves and calls and secures. The eternal, all-powerful God has called you to a destiny to praise his glory through Jesus Christ forever and he is going to see you to the fulfillment of that calling to be illuminated to know him more start knowing him like that since it's God who called you to life in him he's going to secure you through eternal life in him Paul also wants them Uh, enlightened in regard to inheritance. Inheritance is what a a child receives from their father. As adopted children of God, we have an inheritance. It is an inheritance that is shared with Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. So that in Romans 8.17, Paul says we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This is still connected. Remember he starts this with wherefore back in verse 15? This is still connected to what he's been saying previously in chapter 1. Paul's been talking about this inheritance for a while now. In verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. In verse 
14, the, the spirit is the earnest or the guarantor of that inheritance. Paul's desire for the church is for them to be illuminated in these truths that we would know the Lord who saved us forever also has a plan to give us an inheritance which blesses us forever. And yet that God intends to bless us with an inheritance doesn't mean much unless he's actually capable of doing it. So Paul progresses in this prayer from hope to inheritance to power. When you start to dig into verse 19, you find the apostle Paul probably owned a thesaurus. There's several Greek words for working or power or might. And he uses like four different words in verse 19 for this. We read, we read them as power or working or mighty power. And some of the words that we get into English from the Greek words he's using are words like energy and dynamite. Others mean strength. It's like Paul has opened a thesaurus and used all the strong power words, but even that's not enough because when you look at verse 19, he says it's the exceeding greatness of his power. That word exceeding means to to go beyond. The idea here is that you could use every word in the thesaurus to describe the power of God and it's still ultimately insufficient because the actual power of God is far beyond anything that you've described. And yet for all of that, how is this power used? He says he wants God to illuminate their hearts and minds so that they would know the surpassing greatness of his power, Paul says, toward us who believe. The indescribable power of God is not only working For you, Paul says, it is at work in you. We have a resource of strength that we seldom recognize, much less tap into. The power of the all-powerful God, strength that is beyond description, might that is effective in every situation, it is at work in us. And we don't do much with it. Paul's prayer is that the church of Ephesus He's thankful that they're being faithful and obedient to Christ, but he also wants them to be enlightened so that they would live in this confident expectation that the God who has called them is determined to bless them and that he is even now at work in them. Listen, if you got this, if the light switch of your heart was flipped up and you became enlightened with the wisdom and knowledge that he's calling for, if that happened, you and I would live differently than what we do. Paul's prayer was for those faithful in the Lord Jesus to have their eyes wide open to the reality of the mind of God and the might of God. So he's prayed for thank- in thankfulness for their faithful lives. He's prayed for them to have spiritual growth to be illuminated. And then he prays a prayer of praise in verses 20 through 23. He says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of all things over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Now, we've sort of read this whole text, and we've broken it down into these three sections, but you need to realize the bigger context, it meshes it all together. And so, in the point prior where he's talking about the greatness of God's power that's at work in our life, verse 19 blends right into verse 20 as he's talking about this power. And so it says, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is an excellent illustration of God's power. The same strength that raised Jesus from the dead is the life-giving, death-defeating power that's at work in us. But it's not at work in you just for the exalting of you. It will never do that. The goal of all strength in a Christian life is to glorify God the Father through glorifying God the Son. That's what the last four verses here of Paul's prayer is all about. Verses 15 and 16 was that prayer of thanksgiving. Verses 17 through 19 is this prayer for growth and illumination. Verses 20 through 23 is simply a prayer of praise for who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So let's walk through it together and see all the parts that Paul includes. He begins with praise for Jesus' resurrection. At the end of verse 19, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought or he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. There is no hope or redemption or salvation or inheritance or any good thing without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the event that distinguishes believers and and delineates those who kind of look like Christians or they kind of like Christianity. We see the difference between those two through the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, the Lord Jesus was killed on that cross. He was taken down a dead body from the cross. He was buried and he rose again to life after three days. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if the resurrection didn't happen, then you're still dead, you're hopeless, the gospel is a lie, and there is nobody on earth more pitiful than a believer. But Jesus is worthy of being praised because he did rise from the grave. The resurrection makes all the difference. Without it, the cross was a a tragedy. Jesus would have just been a, a good teacher who sort of tragically made the wrong folks mad and died in this travesty of justice. And perhaps he should be mourned for generations. With the resurrection, the cross is the victory. Jesus is the perfect son of God who absorbed the father's wrath on our behalf. He rose to give us eternal life and he deserves to be praised for eternity. 
Paul moves from the resurrection to praise for Jesus' exaltation at the end of verse 20, where he says that God sat him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He, after having risen from the dead, proved himself to be alive for 40 days, teaching and preaching. The disciples walked with him after those 40 days to the top of the Mount of Olives, and he rose up in a cloud and sat down at the right hand of the throne in heaven. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul says here that the Father set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. He is there today at the right hand of the Father, interceding for believers. Now Paul's not finished with this idea by a long shot. He continues this idea right into Ephesians chapter 2, there he's soon going to pick it up again in verses 5 and 6, if you want to look at it, where he says that we were dead and God used his power to raise us up together with Christ and has sat us with him together in heavenly places. The exaltation of Jesus is a worthy cause for praise because he has been exalted and given a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow and recognize he really is the Lord to the glory of God. Next, Paul praises, uh, offers praise for Jesus' authority. As he's exalted and set at the Father's right hand, he is in verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that's named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. This is one of those fun places where commentaries stumble all over themselves trying to explain what it is Paul means by principality and power and might and dominion. Some say he's referring to different classes of angelic beings. Others say that it includes demonic forces. Paul's pretty clear what he means here is everything. He goes on in verse 21 to say it includes everything that you could name in this world or beyond this world and in the world to come. And in using this to describe everything, Paul is making one simple point about everything. That is, everything is under the authority of Jesus. He is supreme. He is transcendent. He is over it all. Not only over it, Paul says, he is far above it. There is not a ruler in this world who can justly claim authority over Jesus. There is not a a spiritual being in the unseen world, be it angel or demon, that can rightly claim power over Jesus. He is above it all. He is forever above it all. There is not one part of the world you can see or the world you can't see that is better than Jesus. He's over everything. And Paul says in verse 22 that God has put all things under Jesus' feet. The imagery there is of a 
ancient conquering king who stands literally with his foot on the neck of his enemies. Every human authority and every spiritual power is subject to the omnipotent, indescribable might of victorious King Jesus. He is Lord of Lords. He is Lord over all. Though some would reject and rebel against him, he is still their Lord. Some claim to love him and yet reject his authority and live however they want. That doesn't change his authority. So poor rebellious Billy that we talked about earlier who took Jesus as Savior but doesn't know him as Lord. What nonsense. Jesus is Lord whether Billy says so or not. And for those of us who do know him, who do love him, we're called to live in obedience to him because he's Lord. We have no business in anything in our life to make something else supreme over him. Paul gets to that next. If Jesus is supreme over all things, surely he's supreme over his church, right? He's praised Jesus for his resurrection, praised him for his exaltation, praised him for his authority over all things, and then Paul praises Jesus for his headship. After all, if all things are put under his feet, the church is one of those all things. The difference being, we're not down there with the foot of Jesus on our neck. We are not his enemy. Listen, verse 22 and 23. He's put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Paul says there in verse 22 that Jesus is the head of the church and in verse 23 the church is his body you know Paul loves this metaphor and he actually uses it in other places as well for example in 1 Corinthians 12 he uses the same metaphor but a bit differently he says the church is the body of Christ and its members are particular parts of the body of Christ. And so each member is vital. And all the body parts, the members of the church have to be connected to each other in order to function correctly. That's the way the metaphor is often used to explain the importance of every member of the church and their vital connection that we have to each other. But that's not exactly the way he's using that metaphor here. Paul was addressing a problem in the church at Corinth when he wrote that, but he's encouraging the church at Ephesus. So here, Paul uses this body metaphor to stress not so much the importance of every member being connected to each other, but the importance of each member being connected to the head, Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church, which is his body. The head is the part of the body that gives life and movement and purpose to all the other parts. Jesus is the only one who is the head of the church. The pastors of an assembly are under shepherds, but they are not the head. You have a deacon. A deacon is a servant, but he's not the head. We can have all the committees and boards that we have, and some of those are practical, some of them might not be practical, but none of them are the head of the church. 
And when it comes to individual members, your own thoughts and feelings and desires and preconceived notions and well-intentioned motives and even your deeply rooted traditions, none of those things can be the head of the church. Jesus is the head. And it is, verse 23 says, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That last phrase there, by the way, is just notoriously difficult. The church is the fullness of Christ. And Christ is the one who fills all in all. Just try to simplify it. I take that the meaning there is that the church is the completion, the fullness of the work that Christ came to accomplish. Your, your, your body has a head, right? And the head is clearly the most important part of the body. And yet the body is the means by which the head operates, right? Your, your hands and arms and feet, and so they, they carry out what your head tells them to do. The church is the fullness of Christ in that sense. As his body, we ought to be carrying out his purposes in this world. But the way Paul uses the words here, it's clear that that doesn't make us great. Like we're filling up Christ. We're making him full. He just wouldn't be complete without us. It makes him great because it is Christ who fills all in all. Everything and every way, Christ is the sufficient cause for the church's work. Y'all, can you see why this would be Paul's prayer? Paul's prayer list here for the church at Ephesus ought to be our prayer list for our church. That we could say in truth, We are faithful to Jesus as Lord, demonstrating our love for him through our love for his people. That we would know the mind of God and the might of God, filled with hopeful expectation, trusting in the eternal inheritance he's provided, reveling in the indescribable power of God that is at work in us. That we would praise the person and work of Jesus for his resurrection and his exaltation and his authority and his headship. Y'all, if we would embrace this today, tomorrow would look different. We would be obedient to him as Lord. We would be glorifying him for who he is. We would be working for him through his power. Let's pray and then we'll sing a song in response to the message. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for your son. Lord, we want to be able to come to you in unceasing thanksgiving for the faithfulness that we have as members of your church. Help us to be more faithful in our obedience to Jesus as Lord, to be his body, his, his hands and his feet and his mouth, that we would, we would work for his glory, to his goals. We ask, Lord, that you would illuminate us with your word. Give us this enlightenment that Paul was praying for for the Ephesians, that we would, we would see, that we would be enlightened, that we would recognize the blessed hope that we have because of your calling, that we would live 
with the expectation of the inheritance of being your children, that we would use the resources of the mighty power that you've displayed that we know is at work in us. And Lord, our prayer is that we would praise Jesus in all things for his resurrection, that he rose from the dead to give new life to all who believe, for his ascension, that he sits now at the right hand of your throne and makes intercession for us daily, for his authority and his supremacy that we would not be shy in declaring to the world around us that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and that all things are under his authority. And Lord, thank you that he is the head of the church. Let us live like he is the head of the church, that we would work according to his will, according to his guidance, according to his direction in all things to bring glory to you through your son, Jesus. Forgive us where we fail it. We ask this in his name. Amen.